Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling as well as the news and events around the hobby. Let's join Mike and Kentucky Dave as they strive to be informative, entertaining, and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Kentucky Dave, 109. What's happening, brother? We are solidly, solidly into February. Things are moving along fast. I realized just the other day that the Mooseroo is due in a month and, or yeah, a month and four days. Yeah, I need, I need no reminder, my friend. <laughs> I realized that. Within six or seven weeks, you and I are going to be at Heritage Con with our Canadian friends. And I realized that July and the Nationals is creeping up quickly enough that I really need to get on the ball and get a lot of things done in order to be prepared for everything we have coming up. How about you? Is that your model sphere? Well, my model sphere is kind of in flux. Go for it. My model room is half torn apart. I've not been making the progress that I've wanted to. And I've come to the conclusion that at least part of that is the way my model room is set up. And so I'm in the process of tearing it apart and trying to rearrange it in a way that is more conducive to actual modeling. I'm also trying to get things more organized, not only in the way the model room is laid out and constructed, but also being a little more conscious conscious about the the steps, the next steps that I need on each model project. I've got four going on right now, and I need to be more conscious about what steps each one needs. And I don't want to come back to a project and think, okay, now where was I and spend half an hour trying to figure out what's going on. I've got some strategies that I'm going to try in regard to that. You know, I've got the silhouette cutter and I've got it set up. I've utilized it a very little bit and I'm trying to learn the ins and outs of the software. I I got into computing at a very young age. I programmed in BASIC and C++ and Perl. I built my own computers. I can't remember anything. <laughs> and now the learning curve on new tech, I know it's not any worse than, than when we were. I mean, I remember building my own computer from components on more than one occasion. So, you know, it's not like, I don't understand stuff and can't figure it out. And I think this is a function of age, and I hate to admit it, but I think as you get older, you get less adaptable. Learning becomes harder. Learning new things becomes harder. And not only is that applicable to this cameo, but I think that's applicable to a lot of modeling in general in regard to learning new techniques trying new products, etc. I think as we get older, we're not as flexible. And 
facing a challenge there. So my model sphere is in big flux right now. So you've been fighting this organizational and model room demon for a while. So maybe it's time to break out the big sword. And <laughs> I, I think you don't have enough room. You have a nice room, but you've it looks like Sanford and Son in there, man. <laughs> well, I have I have determined that I am going to take your suggestion and move some of the bookcases into the pool room. So I think that's a great idea, man. That's gonna just, that's gonna free up some space. Get you a little less cloistered in there, man. Yep. Yeah, I, I there there is that, and I think that will help. Although I do think my main problem is not necessarily, well, it is space in some respects, but it's organization. Having the things I use most often closest to me, having the things I use rarely less accessible. That all makes sense, man. Yeah, that's where I am. It's all up in the air. And guys, I'm going to try and document it on the dojo. So check into the dojo regularly and you can... You can follow along with me. How about you? I've been thinking a lot about episode 107 and 108. Those went a lot better than I wouldn't say that I expected. I have high expectations with every episode. I think they went surprisingly well on top of that, if that makes sense. I think that they gave you a lot more to think about than I expected. I'm not sure I expected those episodes to provoke nearly as much introspection as they have. Well, we got lots of feedback on both 107 and 108. So I want to thank one more time, both Ed Barrett and Paul Budzik for uh, being part of our January lineup. That really went well. Yes. Yep. And I appreciate those guys coming on and uh, hopefully we'll hear from both of those guys before the year's out again. But to to comment a little bit on that, I was thinking about this. I was at a swim meet most of yesterday, and I was—I didn't know you were a competitive swimmer. I was at, not in. Okay, okay. There's a big difference there. Gotcha. So I was at a swim meet, and you know, your son swims four events out of thirty something. So there's a lot of time to think about stuff, right? <laughs> and I did, and I I, I think. It's interesting. Ed and Paul are are similar in age. They've got a similar time in the hobby, right? And we joked that they were both from California and they both had the last name to start with B, coincidentally. I guess that was in the the 12-minute model sphere for January. Coincidentally, they also have music in common. They're both musicians. I think what people are hearing in that is is the wisdom. I, I, I would not doubt that. And it's just pure unfiltered wisdom to to put a Kentucky spin on it. It's barrel strength wisdom. There you go. I think that's what it is. And and that's where the introspection for all of us who soaked that all up comes from and really a neat thing. We've gotten a lot of feedback on both those. So uh, again, Ed, Paul, thanks for that. So what's your model sphere been like other than thinking about our previous two episodes? Well, that was pretty much it, man. That's what I've been thinking about. You spent a lot of time thinking at the pool. I did. And Hmm. prior to the pool, yeah. I I had some notes before the pool, and and I kind of coalesced it down to to those comments while I was there. So 
Yeah. The, the wisdom of, of those two guys is, is very much appreciated. Yes. Not just by us. We got a lot of feedback on those episodes. We did. I am assuming that, that we're recording the episode that you've got a modeling fluid to hand. I do, Dave. And I'd be interested to hear about this. Cause, cause yeah, it's, it's new. There's a lot around why this is the modeling fluid. Well, we can get to more later, but at least tell us what it is. I am drinking Pursuit United from Pursuit Spirits. It's a, a straight bourbon whiskey blend. Okay. And it's, it's looking pretty good. What about you? Well, I am, if I can get it open. Struggling with the bottle opener. Struggling with the bottle opener. I am, and you know what? It's a twist off. Um, I am drinking Red's Hard Apple Cider. I like ciders. Now, you tend to think of them more as summer drinks, but it's a combination of being a little bit lighter, being refreshing, a little more refreshing. They're lower in general. Now, you can find some ciders out there that'll hit you like a hammer, but in general, they're lower ABV, and this one is. And I like them. I think this one will get me through the episode. We'll see how it comes out. Well, I think if folks want some entertainment, they should go check out the hard cider episode of the Andy Griffith Show. Yes. <laughs> now, that's a deep callback, my friend. Uh, I know, but that's as deep as any musical reference you've ever made. A couple of modeling fluids, and I'll argue all night long. That's the best freaking show that's ever been on television. What most people don't know, you know, the Andy Griffith theme song? Yes. Do you know there are words to that song? Uh, there are. Okay. Did not many people realize that? Just like MASH. Yes. Well, in the movie, there was. Well, let's get to some listener mail, then. Let's get to some listener mail, Dave. We've got some listener mail. Okay. We got some good stuff. Bring it on. Well, back to episode 107 and, and 108. And a lot of people sent some listener mail in in response to those two episodes. A lot of those were platitudes for that for those episodes, and, and we really do appreciate that. But I, I want to aggregate those and, and mention a few names who sent those kind of things in. Some of these folks had some other things to say, and we'll get to that in a minute. But just for the appreciation of those episodes, John Bryan, Mark Doremus, Tom Karen, and, and actually Ed Barrett, who was, <laughs> was in one of those episodes, had some nice things to say, and, and we really appreciate that. And it was nice to know that we hit a mark on those that really, really resonated with a lot of people. So, so thank you for that. So getting into the, the listener mail unrelated to those episodes, well, almost. Things not related to our, our, our guests. Kenneth Reed from uh, Tuttle, Oklahoma. And uh, he's one of the hosts of the AmShow Plastic Modeling Podcast. Check that one out. Ken wants to know if my persona non grata comment, what was that from? Oh, that was from the, the, the dry brushing comments I had in the Model Sphere segment of episode 107. 108. He wants to know if that was a musical reference to uh, a band called Exodus, which is a thrash metal band from the 80s and 90s. They've got an album titled Persona Non Grata. Unfortunately, Ken, no, it was not. That was pretty much mentioned in the context of the term that dry brushing was something not to be shown grace or not to be talked about. So. That's where that comes from. Now I got to go listen and see what you're talking about. So Yeah, well, now now you've got people looking for the musical references so deep 
they're finding them where we didn't even put, or you didn't even put them. <laughs> That's true. I didn't think about it like that. He says I made master class in his book. You know, no, no, I don't. I could, I, you know, I could very well have just sit here and lied my butt off about. Oh yeah, sure. That's exactly <laughs> what it was. You're on point. No, um, no, not what happened. That's a coincidence. Man, I missed a good one, Dave. Oh well, that's all right. <laughs> Neil Godden from West Yorkshire in the United Kingdom. He says he's been listening to the podcast and that has suffered from excessive mojo. It means that you wake up thinking about what you, you'll do next, having just dreamed about the stupid plastic thing and simply have to do something on the build. It's quite a debilitating illness that should not be overlooked. Oh, I would love to have that illness. The short-term fix, Dave, is to simply buy more stuff, but just adding to the stash works against you in the end and and becomes even more scary. He closes with, he does admire our un-American (laughs) self-restraint. And then he sent a follow-up email saying that we demonstrate classic symptoms at the end of that episode, that we talked about that. Definitely. Well, Neil, you are correct. It is a very serious illness. Uh, Hypermogitis, in fact, is a very serious illness. It's rare. Hypomogitis is much more common where you (laughs) just don't feel like doing anything. Right. You know, maybe we should do a telethon, Dave. There you go. For all the stuff. Raise some money and help these people who are afflicted with hypermogitis. That's right. Maybe, Maybe we can get some guest stars on. We can do it over the Memorial Day weekend. Whole nine yards. Sounds good to me, man. All right. (laughs) <laughs> well, Neil, chill out, man. It's all good. You'll figure out when to f- when to f- when to have the time to work on that and when to be doing what you probably should be doing as a higher priority. <laughs> yes. Well, we mentioned Tom Caring because he had some nice things to say about prior episode, but he also had something, Dave, he wants to ask you. Oh, gosh. Well, he's a stroke survivor and he's getting up in the years. He says he's 59. His eyes and hands don't like photo etch. And he's working on an Edward, one of the samurai dual kits. Uh, the cockpit has some great detail. He's not going to scrape off and replace with photo etch. <laughs> I, listen, I, I, I fully support that. Well, he wants to know if you've ever built any in-flight in 72nd scale. When I was a, a wee lad, yes, I would occasionally build aircraft with the wheels up. Since getting back into the hobby in the 1980s, I have not built a wheels-up aircraft. I do have one or two ideas for such a thing. And I will say, you know those fast-mover bases that have the blurred image? Yeah. Those things I I got one of those I want to do, too. (laughs) Yeah. Those things I find kind of inspirational for that. A, a friend of both of ours, a fellow MMCL member, Stu Gordon, once did he he famously liked to do planes on poles as as they were called, and he did one front with an Argentinian A four over Falkland Sound after it had gotten hit by near miss by a missile and flipped upside down, and he did just such a good job on that. I would eventually like to do, I've got several ideas for in-flight aircraft models, but no, I have not done them since I've returned to modeling in the 80s. Zach Pease from Sundrench, Mansfield, Connecticut. 
He wants to make us aware of the IPMS Central Connecticut Annual Swap Meet and Build Day. Now, this is going to be held from 9 to f- nine a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, March 16th at the Buckingham Congregational Church at 16 Cricket Lane in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Drinks and refreshments will be available. And if you want a table to sell, it's $10 a table. Now, this is a, an event where the club members and whoever buys a table comes in and thins their stashes and sits there and has a build day. And uh, you can get a snack and a drink while you're there. Yes, but do you actually thin your stash or do you just trade part of your stash for part of somebody else's stash? Depends on how much self-restraint you're ha- you have. But yes, this could be a lateral move. Yep. I don't have good self-restraint at those type of things. MM Sale was going to do one of these in 2020. Yep. And it got kiboshed. Well, it got kiboshed by the fact that we ended up having that 2021 show, I believe. Well, also, I think uh, COVID may have impinged on it a little bit. I don't remember the situation, but I still contend that I think this is a great idea. Oh, I do too. That our club should do one and we should advertise it within region four and we should fire up the charcoal and everybody bring their stacks and tables and and a slab of meat on a, on a Saturday. It's our build day anyway. And just see what happens. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I do too. So Stu Cox, that's my opinion. Our guest from episode 107, Ed Barrett, has got something to say, Dave. Okay. You mean he uh, didn't get it all out during the episode? No, never, man. He's got a lot to say. We're just, we're, we've, we've barely scratched the surface. Well, you know, he talked about that diorama idea of the Twilight Zone episode with the B-25. Right. And our friend Jim Bates, a scale Canadian TV, did a little scratching around and found some information on that plane. Yep. And found some photographs. Of the production of that episode that you can actually see. Now, there's not like standing back 10 feet and you can see all the film equipment, right? Right. But but you can see the boom mics and you can see the plane. You can see the nose art, which is really important. And Ed just wants to thank our listener for, uh, for providing. It certainly helps move the needle, he says. Well, good. So I would like to see that one done. Um, Me too. And Jim, Jim's a good guy. He'll, if he hears mention of something and he knows something about it, he's more than willing to share his knowledge. He's, he's a good guy. Don't tell him I said so. <laughs> well, apparently that plane's in crates somewhere just waiting someday to be restored. Wow. Since the eighties. Yeah. Frank Blanton, RVA scale model studio, Richmond, Virginia. Hadn't heard from Frank for a little while. No, we haven't. He's on the dojo quite a bit. Yep. Mike's point about the Plastic Posse podcast show topic on dry brushing are spot on. (laughs) I've always believed the same and find it humorous that a particular hobby luminary poo-pooed it several years ago, only a few years later to uh, prop it up to sell products labeled as dry brushing paint. (laughs) See, I told you we're going to leave it to the listeners to formulate their own conclusions. Yep. They figured it out. I, well, it, let's 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 face it, and no disrespect to to the listener, it wasn't that hard to figure out. Maybe not. <laughs> Dry brushing is, has has its place in armor modeling and train work as well. And he's glad there are a great many of us who never discounted the technique to chase a fad. It was like everything else in the hobby evolves a bit, and this finishing technique is still quite valid. Well, 
you know, they got the that big show in Richmond coming up. I know. I know. Yeah, that's another one we need to get I, to sometime. I've been to that show one time a long time ago. Long, long time ago, like 20 years ago. Well, the geeks will be there in force, and uh, we'll yeah. get to hear about it all through them. So we'll we'll live vicariously through the model geeks. Yeah, we're going to have a tough time making all the shows that we need to make. Next up is Jason Campbell, our Gundam guy down in uh, Tennessee. He's been plugging away at a Tamiya Wildcat in 48 scale. Good choice. He, he said he read the book Lightning Strike. Yep. What's that? That's the the book on the uh, VMF twenty two two twenty three three. Yeah, he's gonna take it to the uh, region three re- regionals in Atlanta next month, which would be March. That'd probably be a good show too. Yes, it would. And again, that's a show I went to long ago. In fact, with Pete Gay and a couple other guys from MMCL, we all went down and all crashed in one hotel room like five guys. That's back when I was younger and dumber. Well, I went to an Atlanta show a long time ago when I was in college, but uh, yeah. that's a, a day trip. That's one of their invitationals. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the shows are the reason he's writing in, and he wants to tell us that the Knoxville show, which we've talked about before, and again, yet another one. Jeez. Yes, I know. I know. Our wives wouldn't mind if we quit our jobs and we're gone every weekend. Uh, trust me. Well, if this thing was making job kind of money, that'd probably work out. But Yeah, right. You know, that ain't exactly going on. No. The Knoxville show has moved one week to May 25th this year due to a venue conflict. Now, that's Memorial Day weekend, and they're hoping their net will get cast a little farther because of the long weekend. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. That's, that's, that's interesting. If, it's a double-edged sword. That's a double-edged sword. I hope it works out for you guys. and. I mean, we'll try, guys. I don't know. We're not making any promises. May 25th, Knoxville, Tennessee. And he's got a link we'll put in the show notes. And folks can adjust their schedule accordingly. This is a good one, Dave. Rick Reinert. And I'm not sure where he's from. Oh, no. He's uh, in the Myrtle Beach chapter, IPMS. So he's in the Myrtle Beach area of South Carolina. Been there many, many times growing up. It's a cool little hobby shop there. I wonder if it's still there. Let us know, Rick, if the... That shop's still there. Longtime listener. And he says, in the last two episodes, we mentioned the $6 million man. Yes, we have. Well, Rick was on the B-2 flight test program. So he's clearly in the aerospace industry. And Bruce Peterson, the real $6 million man, was the head of safety at Edwards Air Force Base. Oh, wow. A well-respected test pilot will know crap. That's for sure. Yeah. And had a lot of contributions to the B-2 program and also the space shuttle program. And lots of wonderful aviation-related stories. Oh, I'm sure. And he says the only comment he made about the accident involving the Northrop M2-F2, which everybody's seen by now, that's the crash sequence at the starting... The start of the TV show. start of the TV show, the intro theme, is the the tumbling crash of the M2-F2. He said that something about a helicopter being out of position and cutting across the landing area and ultimately contra- contributed to the to the accident. Other than that, he never really talked about it much. Rick did comment once that uh, it would 
would be nice to have all those gizmos installed that TV show had. So yeah. I, th- I think I was wrong. He he did suffer some injury in that crash. Uh, I don't know that his life was ever in jeopardy, but back and leg and hip things that kind of kind of haunt you for the rest of your life. Kind of like, sure. you know, bad car crash. And he says the story he enjoyed the most when he had met him was way back in the mid-1960s. He was flying an F-100 along the Nevada-California border. And came across an aircraft he had never encountered before. A long, black, sleek thing with two huge engine exhausts and spikes out the front ends of the intakes. (laughs) He said he gave it the fly around and got a real good look. And when he landed back at Edwards, he was met by two men in black. (laughs) And then signed his life away and was told never to mention it again. I assume that's the SR seventy one yes. or, or the prototype A twelve. Yeah, the A twelve. Depending on where where that was in the development program. Interesting. Uh, he yep. follows up. The museum at Edwards is great. There's a lot of kits there built by the Antelope Valley IPMS chapter, and a lot by Ed Barreth now. And he finishes Myrtle Beach chapter of the IPMS, which he's a member, has a regional contest coming up on March twenty third. All are welcome. Uh, I'm not sure which region that is, but uh, March twenty third, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you're in that vicinity, check it out. And finally, Dave, as usual, from the email side of things, Mr. Michael Karnaka from New York City, New York. What's he got to say? Well, according to his ears, we've entered 2024 with all cylinders running full speed ahead. And judging from our energy displayed during the podcast, yeah, we appreciate that. I'm glad that enthusiasm's coming through. I don't know if it was intentional, but we were excited during both those episodes. And Yes, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because, you know, normally the interview is recorded off timing with the rest of things. So to have that transposed from the interview segment over to the to the regular shell segment, that's a good thing to know. Appreciate that. Glad we're uh, keeping things consistent. And we are excited. 2024 is going to be a good year. Yes, we're really working. We've we've been working hard on on the show and we've got a lot of ideas for 2024. And now we're just going to see what we can get done, when we can get done, how quickly, and how much. Well, his question of the episode centers around shipping costs. Okay. And he wants to know, well, what's the most expensive rate we've paid, if we know what that is? And was there one that led us to not going through with a purchase? Just just wondering. There have been any number of times where I've been on a website piling up a cart and then you go to hit calculate and the shipping costs were just prohibitive, especially considering the cost of what I was actually buying. I will say rates out of Japan are pretty difficult. On the other hand, rates out of Poland and out of Australia are fantastic. I can't remember the most I've ever paid. I have several times been at vendors or been on websites and looked at their shipping costs because a lot of times you can't see it till the end. Yeah. And then gone, no, no way. I'm not going to spend that much for that. For I'm not going to pay that much. For shipping. So how about you? In scale modeling, the one that almost gave me heartburn was I ordered that that sample order I did. I ordered like a half dozen things from FC Model Trends out of Spain. Yeah. 
and it was looking really ugly. And I've seen a lot of people gripe about that either online or to direct emails to us through, Mm -hmm. you know, as listener mail. I can't remember what I did. There was some option on there because it was just, it was unbelievable. It's like, really? There's no way I'm doing this. And I fussed around and fussed around. And eventually I found some option in their shipping thing that I was able to get it down substantially. So that almost did, but, but ultimately did not. In scale modeling, no, but I, I can relate to this because in my military hobby, it, it gets really interesting trying to do international business because the shipping costs like to, this is all Western Europe. It's, it's completely a, a Western Europe thing. Canada to to some extent, but Western Europe, it's just expensive. Yes. And not only is the shipping expensive, but they're paying, I guess it's the VAT. I don't don't know. I don't don't know what it is, but they're paying a tax, a duty on, on stuff coming into the country. That's like typically between 25 and 50%. And the thing I've always dealt with is, they're ordering some piece of military, which probably has a multi hundred dollar price tag on it. And they want to try to tell you or convince you to insure it for X, but only claim Y on the, on the, on the duty, on the, on the, on the, on the, custom on the customs form. I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. Right. I, I, you can't have it both ways. So. Right. That certainly scrubbed a few deals in that regard. But in scale modeling, I you're right. Japan is probably the, the one that makes me wince the most. And typically if I'm ordering something from Japan, it's it's it has to be Japanese branded because at that point the discount to some degree offsets the shipping, right? Right. And maybe it's a wash, maybe you come out a little bit ahead, but hopefully it's something that you can't get in the United States very easily. That's the only rationale that that works for me. But yeah, you got to be careful. It's sometimes the shipping is is way over the top, and you don't and you don't want to get pot committed. You don't want to get that uh, cart full, then get to the shipping and and see that number, and then you're already so enthralled by your purchases that logic goes out the window. Well, Dave, that's it from the uh, flat email side of things. What's been going on in the direct message from Facebook? Well, we, we've had a lot of communications, and just like you, quite a number of them, just like the emails you received, quite a number of them were praised for episodes 107 and 108. Obviously, those resonated with the listeners, and so you know that was really really nice to hear. In direct messages not related to that, Mike Halliday reached out actually to you. He was he was directing the DM at you because there's a company out there called Yao, Y-A-O, who does 3D printing and they advertise some 3D printed catapults. And in fact, not only catapults, but Full turrets for American battleships and and all in seventy second scale. So he wanted to bring those to your attention, and you know he had ordered one thing from them. I think it was an Italian catapult, and it 
you know, the, the print quality was not super fine. So it was going to require some work involved. And I think that's the hesitation that you should have with all but the most well-known 3D print companies who are advertising stuff, because it's easy to come up with something that you're advertising, you know, and, and, you know, get a nice 3D render. And yeah, I've always wanted that. Nobody was ever going to do that. But, you know, unless you've dealt with the company before, you're kind of buying a pig in a poke. No, you are. Because the, the, the quality variability among 3D printers is huge. And in fact, not only the quality of the printing, but the engineer, the underlying engineering, there are Michelangelo and there, there are house painters. And the same thing goes with 3D printing CAD designers. There are guys who are artists and folks who may just know the basics. And so you really, really, really have to be careful when it comes to particularly brand new 3D companies, many times advertising lots of cool stuff that sound really really exciting the cad renders are nice but show me a printed model with all the supports on it that's when i'm going to decide whether i'm going to buy it or not and you know that's something that a lot of 3d companies don't show you they'll show you the cad renders but nowhere will they show you the actual item printed out and i think that I think that's almost vital to be able to see if it's like not getting a sprue shot. You know, yeah, you give me 3D CAD renders of your latest kit, but I'd kind of like to see the sprue shots. I think it's I think it's worse than not getting a sprue shot because I think with 3D printing it's even more important. It is more important and it's it's there's so much of this stuff out there and particularly out of Asia right now, you've got a lot of these guys pumping out stuff and the variety is all over the map. How much vested interest do they really have in the subject and how good is the model really? I think that's something you ought to consider. And and it was neat to see these things and maybe I wish they'd offer the turret by itself because the turret's one thing it's pretty basic shape but the catapult and the plane are kind of intricate and there's gonna be a lot of nuance there and and i'm an engineer and i'm freaking picky man and if it's not the way i would have done it i'm probably not gonna get it because the planes probably exist in a kit And, and in this case it did it's it's the seagull well, no, it's actually an OSU. It's not the Seagull. It's the biplane version from the third, from the late, well, late well, 20s, Seagull early is a biplane. 30s. Well, this is no different. This is an open cockpit biplane. It's the OSU three. Okay. Well, yeah. Which I think there may be either a resin or a vac form kit of. Yeah. The planes on the catapult changed with the ages. The, the turret itself, not so much because it's a big honking piece of armored steel, right? Right. So I think my point's still valid that the stuff above the turret, the catapult and the plane, 
that's where the nuance is. And that's where support structure and an intimate knowledge of the subject are going to come into play. And I don't know that I'd like to see one of them, but I'm, I'm really, really, really skeptical. What else you got? Stephen Reed, we had mentioned that we don't have admissions questions, screening questions for the dojo because we really haven't needed them. And he just, he said, he, he DM'd to tell us the greatest screening questions that he ever saw on any Facebook group. It was a series of three questions and the instructions told you to only answer the third question. And he was betting that 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 formulation screened out a lot of bots because, you know, it it kind of takes a human level of intelligence to read that instruction and and figure it out when any kind of bot is just trying to get through whatever security questions are present in any Facebook group. And uh, I just thought that was a great idea. It's like that thing where the the test where they give you and it tells you to read all the questions before answering. And of course, everybody sits down and just starts answering the questions and you get to the bottom. And the last thing, the last question is skip all of the previous questions and simply sign your name. (laughs) It's one of those people, it's one of those tests for people as to whether or not they read thoroughly. That's true. Yep. Our friend Stephen Lee, we've had a lot of interaction with Stephen over the last couple of weeks on DMs and all. But the part I wanted to pick out and mention was you had talked about how acrylic washes are more difficult or have been more difficult and you've had less success with them. And he DM'd to tell you he agrees with you. But he's come across a new product that he's starting to test out that is an acrylic wash, and it he thinks it may it may solve a lot of the problems. Now he's not sure yet, he hasn't fully tested yet, so he doesn't want to to you know to go public saying, yeah, the this works and what it is and all. But he thinks he's found something that may that may clear up a lot of the problems that you usually associate with acrylic washes. Well, I think there's, there's two issues and Steve, I know you're listening. So here's what I think. One is how it flows, you know, the the capillary action, how the stuff flows, the, the the acrylic washes. And when I say that, I'm I'm talking about the, the, the convenience ones, the, the, the canned ones, the ones from Vallejo. Primarily, the other ones yeah. I've tried. It tends to work more like a glaze than a wash. Not only does it accumulate around raised detail and recessed detail, it just gives an entire hue shift to everything you put it on, which is something a solvent-based wash doesn't do. At least not to the d- degree that an acrylic wash does. Right. If you had an acrylic wash that solved the flow problem and that kind of glaze problem, I think you're half the way there. The other issue with an acrylic wash is when it dries, you can't do anything with it after that point to modify it, except apply more paint over it. Right. An oil-based wash 
particularly an enamel-based or an oil paint, tube oil paint-based wash or one of the convenience products washes, you can go back with white spirits and a damp brush and blend that stuff out and, and play with it and move it around and, and do whatever you want. I don't think you're ever going to be able to do that with an acrylic wash. So, you know, one that comes to mind is that Nuln Oil shader color from the Citadel, the, the Citadel line. I really like that stuff. It's it's an acrylic wash of sorts. Right. You know, but it's I th- I think I think what it is with that stuff is the pigment load's kind of low. So if you really want like a, a dark shadow around something, it it takes a couple of three coats sometimes to get that. So you've got a lot more control over it. It it's an interesting product, but I I don't think that's typical of of these acrylic washes, so we won't go too far with that. Uh, I'm curious what he's going to have to say once he once he rings out this new brand he's he's discovered. Me too. I'm I'm interested to hear his follow up reports. You got anything else, Dave? Yeah, Neil Gilborn, our friend from England, he sent a photograph from Facebook where some modeling widow was, you know, trying to get rid of an entire stash pile of the photograph is I think what did it just piles of boxes and boxes of model kits. And he sent it along just on the interesting note about how we value our stashes, but obviously when we're gone, they're not valued or may not be valued. And I pointed him, our friend Jim Bates is an estate attorney. And Jim has actually gone on one or more podcasts. I think it was one of the early PPP ones. He's gone on, I think, a couple of podcasts and talked about estate planning for modelers and how they can set their estate up and their will or whatever to try and maximize what happens to their stash, both for the benefit of their heirs, but also to make sure that these items just don't get dumped in a dumpster. They get to other other modelers who may appreciate them. And so I I pointed him to look for those those podcast episodes. Joe McCaslin DM'd regarding the dry brushing. He was one of those people who never realized that it went out of favor and said that uh, he's glad he didn't know it went out of favor because he's always used it and he's always found it to be a valuable, valuable modeling tool in the toolbox. Finally, Scott Huber, he DM'd wanting to know if we were going to be at the Tricon model contest in Pittsburgh on March 9th because he wanted to offer to buy us a beer. And while I would love to take him up on that, we are not going to make Pittsburgh on March 9th. As I said a couple of times, Mike and I are struggling to figure out how we're going to make all of the shows that we want to try and make this year. And we may have to make some hard choices. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know the guys in Pittsburgh, Barry Numeric and the crew. 
and they're all great modelers. And I would love to get up to Pittsburgh sometime, but I don't think it's going to happen this year. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's about six hours to the minute for me, and it's got to be seven for you. It is. You know, we should just go quit our jobs and become college professors or something, because then we could take a sabbatical one year and just it, freaking it go, go to, to all the contests. We could go to all the contests we wanted to go to. Yeah, we, we'd end up in a re- living out of the back of a rented van. <laughs> it, would, it wouldn't end well. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't end well. But so that's everything from the DM side, Mike. Well, folks. We love the listener mail. We love the DMs. You can write into the show at plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com or send us a Facebook direct message. I'll handle the email for the most part and Dave the DMs for the most part. Come on, folks. Send us more. We love it. It's, it's, It's our favorite segment of the show. Listeners, when you're done listening to this episode, if you would please go to whatever podcasting app you listen on and rate the podcast, we'd appreciate it. If you would give it five stars, any rating that or review that we get helps drive the visibility of the podcast and it exposes us to possible new listeners. In addition, the best single way for our podcast to grow and we continue to grow, and we want to continue to grow even more, is for a current listener to tell a modeling friend who isn't listening about the podcast. So we'd appreciate it if every one of you listening to this would, the next time you're at the club meeting or the hobby shop or whatever, recommend Plastic Model Mojo to a modeling friend You may have to show them. They may not know what a podcast is. Help them out and get them subscribed to the show. And we'd appreciate that. And after you've done that, please check out the other podcast out in the model sphere. You can do that by going to www.modelpodcast.com. This model podcast plural is a consortium website set up with the help of Stuart Clark from the Scale Model Podcast up in uh, Canada. And he's aggregated those podcasts on a single website. And you can find the banner links there and go directly to those other other shows and see what they got going on. In addition to podcasts, we've got a lot of friends out there in the model sphere who've got some content they're creating via blogs and YouTube. We've got Jeff Groves, the Inch High Guy. Check out the Inch High Guy if you're looking for uh, 70 second scale content. Jim Bates of Scale Canadian TV. He's got a blog on YouTube and a lot of interesting commentary on the hobby. Stephen Lee, Sprue Pie with Frets, long and short form blog. A lot of good stuff. Really interesting one recently. You're going to want to go check that out. Chris Wallace, model airplane maker, blog and YouTube channel. Check it out. He's been playing around with his laser uh, engraver. We're going to be curious what he does with that thing. Panzermeister36, he's dropped a recent video on dust effects on his uh, PZ3. You're going to want to Check that out and please like and subscribe to all these channels. We love them all and we want these guys to do well. If you are not a member of your national organization of IPMS, that's IPMS USA here in the United States, IPMS Canada, IPMS Mexico down south of the border, or whatever national IPMS organization incorporates where you live, 
please consider joining. Uh, national IPMS organizations consist of a bunch of volunteers who give up some of their modeling time to try and make your overall modeling experience better. Additionally, if you are an armor modeler, the Armor Modeling and Preservation Society, AMPS, A-M-P-S, it is an international organization devoted to promoting armor modeling. A bunch of great guys really dedicated to making armor modeling more popular and to advancing the art form. So if you're not a member, please join AMPS. Well, Dave, let's have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder steam back airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Well, Dave, it's the all-American red, white, and blue, man. Yep, we are coming up close to Nationals time. It is, it's going to be here before you know it. You're going to blink your eyes and it's going to be here. We are 163 days away from the IPMS National Convention for 2024 in Madison, Wisconsin. A couple things going on. Registration is open now. So if you're going to pre-register, jump on the website and uh, take care of that. Yes, you want to pre-register. You do not want to show up at the show and have to register at the show. In addition, they've dropped a new mission brief as of the 2nd of February. So get on there. That's going to be your uh, primary conduit of information, the mission brief link on the the website. And the website is nats2024.com. So it's nats2024.com, N-A-T-S-2024.com. So, Dave, I'm looking forward to it. I know you're looking forward to it. We're going to get pre-registered. We've got a room. We're ready to rock and roll. So uh, it's going to be a good time. Dave, our special segment tonight is Mr. Brandon Lowe of Squadron Hobby. Now, Brandon has become the new owner of Squadron Hobby, which is the latest carnation of what was Squadron Mail Order which had an unfortunate history over the last, I don't know, six, seven years. But he's intent on bringing this back and uh, making it a player in the scale model retail world. And we look forward to hearing what Brandon has to say. Well, Dave, this guest tonight made a big splash at the IPMS National Convention in San Marcos last summer. And uh, it was a brand we're all excited to see back on the forefront of the hobby landscape. Tonight we've got Brandon Lowe, the uh, the owner of Squadron Hobbies. Brandon, how you doing tonight? Doing pretty good, Mike. How about yourself? Uh, can't complain here. It's uh, not as cold as it was about a week ago. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it it's not raining tonight either. So we're, same we're can in good be shape. said for here. Yep. Well, well, Brandon, thanks for joining us tonight, and uh, we just want to get into uh, this new Squadron Hobbies and how that came to be but before we get all into that give us a little bit about your personal background and your your hobby interests and uh, kind of the lead up to how you got into the hobby industry yeah absolutely uh first off i appreciate you guys having me on tonight so i'm looking forward to this i guess the me being in the hobby business starts uh back in around 2006 and at the time i was 21 and my dad and I 
when I was a young boy, uh, just a few years old, uh, my grandfather gave uh, me an HO gauge uh, train set, you know, just your regular circle, uh, locomotive, couple cars in a caboose. Okay. And uh, my dad and I set that up one evening, and before you knew it, uh, that little circle track uh, became dad's hobby, and the entire attic was finished, and we proceeded to build this at the time, what I thought was a humongous train layout. And it was large, uh, but everything looks large uh, when you're a kid. So this huge train layout uh, just kind of became his hobby and, by extension, my hobby. Uh, He really enjoyed making the trains run. You know, he enjoyed that part of it. Uh, But obviously, you need scenery. So he started into doing the mountains and the buildings and doing the little cars and all this and i would see him painting these buildings painting these cars and i I really thought that was cool and i remember he let me use his paints and his paint brushes and glues and everything and uh, i don't remember specifically which ones he would let me do but i remember building those and painting those along with him and then as i got a little bit older uh, he would be at work i'd come home from school and i'd go upstairs and i'd you know, find the bag of trees and I'd be placing trees and just building this whole scenery kind of thing. And I I really enjoyed that. And then uh, a little bit later, as I got a little older, I got introduced to the, uh, the Warhammer gaming figures. And believe it or not, I never actually played the game. I don't even know how to play the game even to this day, but I built a lot of those uh, army (laughs) figures. I mean, I had They're way cool. There's a, what, what, even if you're not into the game, there's some way cool stuff there. Right. And, and back then, I had no idea I was building model kits. You know, I didn't, being a modeler now, I didn't start in the, what I would call traditional way that many of us, uh, not myself included, but many guys started with building airplanes or, or car models or whatever it was, you know, old Ravel kits or Aurora monsters, all that. That's not how I started. I started this way through the trains and then these Warhammer figures. And I didn't know it was a model kit. It was just a, you know, it was a Warhammer guy, uh, army guy or alien. And I had a few tanks and it was really cool. And then as we see very often uh, in this business now, uh, I, I grew up a little bit. I turned 16. Uh, you know, I was interested in cars and uh, I had a band. I played guitar, you know, so I didn't really care about models anymore. But fast forward a few years later, after I got out of high school, my dad owned a, uh, a boat manufacturing plant. They uh, called Caravel Power Boats. They built real boats, ski boats, um, pleasure boats, that kind of thing. And in 2005, he sold that business, or 2006, the beginning of 2006, he sold his company. And at the time, I had been working uh, for my uncle on the internet, selling, yet again, boats. And he sold, uh, and still does to this day, he sells small boats, canoes and kayaks and things. And I remember I was 13 or 14 years old, and my uncle comes to me and says, hey, would you like to learn how to sell on the internet with me? And, and my response was, sure. What's the internet? And uh, this was around 97, I guess, 97, 98. Yeah. And uh, internet existed, but it wasn't anything like it is now. So I started learning the whole e-commerce thing. And by the time dad sold his business, 
I was uh, about 20, I guess, and I wanted to do something on my own. I wanted to own my own internet business, just like my uncle. I thought that was cool. Now, let me interrupt you. When you say you're with your uncle, you, you know, you learned to sell on the internet and you learned e-commerce. Were you learning the back end, the programming and, and that stuff, or were you on the front end, the actual uh, sales and marketing? A little bit of both, mostly on the back end. Um, there was no physical store. I mean, we started literally in a closet in his house. And it was a closet in the back of his house. There was a computer there. And when I started, he didn't have a clue what he was doing either. I mean, this was the very beginning of the Internet, I believe. And if he ever hears this, he'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. But he was one of the first 100 websites that existed. Wow. And Yeah. So it was literally he learned it from the ground up. And, uh, and he taught me a lot of things. You know, this is what a domain is. This is what. And e-commerce is, you know, you had to figure out how to uh, take a credit card over the uh, over the Internet. A lot of things that now today we, I guess you could say, take for granted, but it's so easy. You can start a website and, you know, within a, a day or so you can be up and running if you have right. product to sell. It wasn't the case back then. So, but yes, I was learning the back end, how to build the website, how to take pictures of these boats and how to put the pictures on the Internet so people could see the product that we're selling um, typing the description so people would know what we had, um, and basically just getting a website up and getting product to sell. And that's what I learned with him, and I fell in love with with the business side of that, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do one day. I wanted to own my own business. Well, when Dad sold his boat company, he jokingly uh, tells the story that uh, he was basically retired, but he was too young to be retired. And his first day home, my mom told him, well, as long as you're home, and then he says the rest of that sentence, it, it doesn't even matter what she said. I knew <laughs> I, I needed something to keep me busy. So I told him one day, I said, man, I'd really love to start an internet business. I know how to do it, but kind of expensive. And he said, well, I need something to do. I've got a little money and I have no clue how to do an internet business. Why don't we do something together? And we decided to go into business together. And he, I guess you could say he was the money. I was the brains. It, you know, it's not an exact science, but uh, that's what we'll go with. And then it was just a matter of, well, what do we do? And we tossed around a lot of ideas and one idea that we had was that we wanted to do something fun that we would enjoy. And we remembered the time that we spent when I was younger building the trains. And we're like, wow, what if we had an online hobby store? So we started looking around. And of course, at the time there was online hobby stores, <laughs> Squadron, they had a website at that time, right. uh, obviously. And uh, there was other thing. We looked at some of the um, other options. We looked at uh, uh, some of the chain hobby stores. You know, getting into that, um, all sorts of different options, and we somehow or another came up with the name Free Time Hobbies. We tossed around a bunch of names, but Free Time Hobbies sounded fun, and our our uh, slogan back then was "It's five o'clock somewhere." You know, five. <laughs> get off at five and, and do something fun. Build a model. Right, And that's kind of what we went with our original 
uh, logo for Free Time Hobbies, which we still use to this day, is a clock. And the clock is set at five o'clock. So <laughs> that was the idea. We started that, but then we quickly realized, man, we, you know, we got, uh, we have nothing and we have nobody to sell it to. So we started looking for potentially to buy a business that, you know, is up for sale. Yeah. So we started looking, you know, there's these online places you can go and, hey, these businesses are, are for sale, kind of like buying a house. You right. know, you can go look at business listings. And we found some uh, some online hobby stores. We looked through a lot of them and we narrowed it down to three. And one of them, and this is kind of funny because we ended up buying the other one that we looked at. Uh, I forget what the third one was. It was some remote control company. And we decided we didn't really have any interest in that. But the top two that it was down to was between one called Diecast Alley, which we ended up buying a few years later anyway. And then the one that we ended up buying was called Trident Hobbies. And Trident Hobbies, they specialized in ship models. Mm -hmm. Well, dad manufactured boats. I worked for my uncle who sold small boats. So selling ship models just kind of made sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> free, I remember free time being the place for everything ship model related. Right. Well, and that's how that came to be because we bought Trident Hobbies, and it was out of North Carolina. We moved it to Americus, Georgia, which is where we started. But we really liked our name, Free Time Hobbies, that we had come up with. So instead of continuing to use the Trident name, we kind of just – shifted everything into free time hobbies and that's how free time was born and like i said that was in 2006 um in the fall if i remember correctly and that really got us going i mean overnight we had product to sell we had customers to sell it to um and then it was just a matter of learning the product because like i said i didn't have a background per se in model kits as i would call a model kit now but it didn't take very long i fell in love with ship models i started building them i remember the first two ship models that i built uh, after we got started uh, and the reason i chose these two is because i had um when we got all the inventory there were two kits that were damaged that i that were returned and i couldn't sell one was a 72 scale um u-boat from Ravel, yeah. and the other was a 350th scale musashi battleship from tamiya so, Both great kits. Yep. And and they were. And those are my two first kits, and they probably looked terrible. I wish I still had them today. <laughs> but uh, that, that was how I got started in, in building the models. But you had fun building them, and that was the important thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> you know, and I, to be honest with you, I, I built those from the standpoint of if I'm going to sell these things, I really need to know about them, know how how this works, right. what's this all about. And it's not that I didn't like them. I, I was not planning on necessarily falling in love with building model kits. It just, all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, this is really fun. So not only was I enjoying uh, building my new business, but I was also enjoying building the model kits that we were selling. And it's just the whole thing. You know, they always say, if you do something that you love for work, you never have to go to work. Right. And that's really what it turned into for me. That's how I got into the business, I guess you could say. Well, I think it's it's interesting because it's kind of converse. You, you, 
we've, we've talked to shop owners before, not necessarily on the podcast, but, uh, uh, our, our local hobby shop in Louisville was kind of this way. And then you hear it from retail store owners and hobby business owners at the shows and stuff, just in casual conversation that, you know, they got into it because they were a modeler. And then once they got into it, they didn't do it anymore because it's all, it was all running the business. Well, you've kind of turned that upside down. You kind of started this business with, we kind of had it in your DNA with the model railroading, but uh, you kind of had, you kind of rediscovered it with the ship models and, and uh, got yep. back into it. That's cool. And it is true. I mean, it's, and I've heard that a lot too. Um, and don't get me wrong. It, it is a lot of work and I don't get to build near as many models as I would like to, but uh, I've heard it a lot that, once people get into the business, they lose the love for the hobby and it's just a job. And I hope I don't ever have to say that because I, I really do enjoy it. So now how did free time in 2006 end up event? I mean, I remember free time at, at a number of nationals. But so how did you all go from free time to squadron? All right. So. 2006, we started, and we started in a very small room. I mean, that shop that we were in is probably not much bigger than my model room that I'm sitting in right now. It was just, it was very small, um, but it got the job done. So not even a year into that, we were already out of space. So we moved down the street, and this is down in Americus, Georgia. Well, we were there for about a year, maybe a little over a year, and somehow we just got to talking about moving to the mountains and it's something dad had always wanted to do. And, and there are some beautiful mountains in Georgia. Yep. And and that's where we are now. And he, he just decided one day, he said, you know, I sold the business. Um, you know, I can move, we can be wherever we want. We have an internet business. Why don't we live where we want? And I was like, okay, well, where do you want to live? He said, I want to live in the mountains. So we started looking. I said, look, I mean, you want to move? I'll move the business. Let's go. Let's let's pack up and go. So we ended up in Blue Ridge, Georgia. And in Blue Ridge, we got this, um, I don't, it's a shopping center and it was a storefront. I don't know how big it was, a couple, few thousand square feet. And, uh, well, not to start with, to start with, it was probably, I don't know, what was it? 2,000, 3,000 square feet, I guess. And then as we grew in there, on the back side of the shopping center, there's these warehouse spaces, and we rented a couple of those. And and, and this was a an actual brick-and-mortar retail store. So we had our website, but we also – our warehouse doubled as a retail store. So – and I still remember customers coming in, and every once in a while, people will still talk about the uh, the special – warehouse room in the back that you didn't unless you knew you didn't know and if you knew you were allowed to go back there so that was a lot of fun but through those years we were there in that location for the longest we were there from about 2008 i think is when we moved in there and we were there until 2015 and in 2015 we started building um our our good store our big store uh, this is we, the one that I remember from this the, is, the, yep. the pictures from exactly. from the internet when you when you went to the website. This is yes. the free time website. The, yep. This was the picture of the building that you exactly. Got. This is the building that we were proud of, and and leading up to this, we had done a lot of things. I mentioned we had bought Diecast Alley, one of the original companies we were looking for. So we bought them. We started selling little sixty four scale diecast cars like Hot Wheels, right. um, 
but there was two or three brands that competed with Hot Wheels that were very nice that we sold. Um, we ended up, you were talking about Free Time Hobbies being the, the ship model place. Well, we were, and we thought we were, we wanted to be, but in 2000, I think nine or 10, uh, probably 2010, uh, we bought the other ship place called Pacific Front Hobbies. Yep. And up to then it was Pacific Front and Trident Hobbies. Those were the two ship places. Well, when we bought Pacific Front, we we really did like to consider ourselves the ship guys at that point. And um, that's kind of what we really focused on. And then through those next few years, we ended up buying um, Yankee Model Works, which was a resin ship company. Yeah. And we turned that into Blue Ridge Models and we started yep. making our own ships. So we, we did a lot of stuff like that. We were buying up businesses um, that really fit the mold of what we were doing. Um, and at our, our big store that, that I'm about to talk about, we had what we, uh, jokingly, it was an inside joke, but we called it our trophy wall. And we had the logos of all the different brands that we had bought, uh, on our wall, just because <laughs> we still used them, but we molded everything into free time hobbies and blue Ridge right. models. But throughout, through those years leading up to 2015, that's kind of what we were doing. We were expanding and we were building the business uh, this way. Buying other businesses is a great way to make money, but it's also a great way to lose money. And, and it is. You and your father were very, very uh, selective about what market niche you were trying to fill or add into free time hobbies. And yes. Well, and it's interesting you say that because in, in just a few minutes, we will get to the part where we bought a company that led to selling free time hobbies and then be led and then led to having the opportunity to buy squadron. Okay, um, go ahead. So, so yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And through these, through this time, there was a couple of companies that we bought that really didn't do us any good. Um, I wouldn't say it hurt us, but we didn't really benefit anything from them. If I could go back and do it again, there's a couple of them we, we would just, you know, leave. Sure. Um, but most of the time, several of these companies were failing companies, not mm -hmm. all of them. Uh, Pacific Front, for example, he was not failing. Bill Gruner, that was the owner. He was, he had a great business. He was doing really good. But he was getting up there in age, and he was ready to retire. His, him and his sure. wife wanted to enjoy the rest of their life and um, and not have to deal with that anymore. So he called us up one day and made us an offer, and we accepted. So, um, you know, so there's there's a little bit of both. But then I remember we bought a, a train company one time uh, right down the road from us uh, in Canton, Georgia. Um, and I can't remember the name of it all of a sudden. It shows you how much of a benefit we got off that but he was absolutely done when we found out he was for sale he had already shut the door given all of his stuff away basically and we're like hey if you would have called us we would have bought it so we we ended up getting his name and a little bit of inventory but that didn't do us any good so sure it's a mixed bag of reasons why we bought businesses but uh so going up to 2015 that's what we were doing 2015 we decided that we would like to move out of the shopping center and build our own place. And we found a building uh, just south of town, about three miles from where we were. It was a 
basically a double wide. It was a bank building. You know how the banks build their office buildings out of those double wide trailers and put a fancy yep. surround on them? Yep. So that's what it was, but it had a big property with it. So we we bought that and we built an all new uh, 5,000 square foot building hooked to the front of it. And the back, the offices, that was all of our offices. And in the front, that was our um, our store, which, again, doubled as our warehouse. And we set that thing up really nice, or we thought it was really nice. And we set it up kind of sort of like an old-timey hobby shop. Uh, we had a really old-timey um, bookcase in there that we displayed models on, and we had these really old display cases uh, and we really did our best to give it a vintage feel, uh, but also have it to where it can work for our uh, internet fulfillment business as well. And it was great. We loved it. Uh, we actually we uh, chartered an IPMS chapter, and we had several guys that joined that. So we had our IPMS meetings there. We ended up having an IPMS model show there, I think, two times. Um, so we, we had a lot of fun. We did that kind of thing, but what we started to realize a few years into that is that that scene, that retail scene, enjoying, you know, doing that whole thing was, it was a lot of fun and we loved it and I wouldn't go back and do it any other way, but it was hindering us from being able to expand our online presence gotcha and the reason that is is you know i'll I'll say it this way domino's makes pizzas what would happen if they started to make hamburgers or sell fish or or whatever it might work but they're going to be spending a lot of time effort and marketing on that and that time put into that is going to take away from the time spent on their pizzas, which is their bread and butter. That's your one finite resources time. Exactly. And we ran into the same thing because in our retail store, we, we started selling kites and board games. And, uh, I remember at one point we were selling paintball guns, uh, and, and rockets and, and mm-hmm. all these things that are, that are very cool. I love them. It's, it's a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed having that stuff on the shelf, but every time we would restock the puzzles or the board games or, or whatever it was, that was time and money that was taking away from the model kit side of the business, which was 95 or more percent of our business. Gotcha. And so we had a lot of decisions to make. Uh, and the other interesting, and this is a, a personal life fact for me, the other interesting thing that happened in 2015 was that I got married. <laughs> well, yep. that had no effect on your work-life balance. <laughs> well, and, and it was it was kind of interesting, too, because uh, our store, so my, my wife and I, well, my fiance at the time, and I were trying to figure out where we're going to get married. And uh, we looked at all these places and you can imagine the, uh, the wedding venues up in the mountains are beautiful, but it just wedding venues in the mountains that are beautiful. 
they're not cheap. Yep. <laughs> so uh, we're looking at all these places. We're like, man, I really like this, but I don't know. And one day it occurred to me that, babe, this is a crazy idea, but you realize that we are building a 5,000 square foot building that until we put model kits in it is going to be a wide open, empty canvas that we could decorate however the heck we wanted. And Oh, that works. That's well, beautiful. We ended up having our wedding in the building before we moved Free Time Hobbies in there. Um, and if you saw the pictures of the wedding, you wouldn't believe that that two or three weeks later was going to be the free time hobbies that, <laughs> that many of our customers came to know. Um, now that alone tells me you're a good businessman. <laughs> well, I don't know. It, it ended up working out and, and, and it was very nice. Um, pretty sure my wife liked it. So that's, that's all that matters. Right? That is all that matters. Yep. So, but that, um, that was another big life change for me. Uh, before that I was, I was just blowing and going all business. Uh, my wife still says I am today, but uh, before that, I, I mean, it was all always all the time. I was going to as many model shows as I could. If I could drive there, I was there. Right. Um, so it was good for building the brand and, and doing business. But as soon as I was married, obviously I wanted to spend more time with the family. Um, we had uh, our son, our first son, um, we have three now, two sons and a daughter. And so all these things are, are going on. You know, I got my family now uh, trying to figure out we, we really want to expand our own line. The retail store is hindering us. Um, and then my oldest son starts racing dirt bikes, of all things. Uh, they start them young. Little 50cc oh, yeah. dirt bikes. Those oh, yeah. things are crazy fast and when I first, I thought it was the coolest thing. You know, we go out to the, our next door neighbor got us into it. Me and my son were out riding four wheelers one day in the woods and our neighbors who I'd never met were on our trails. I'm like, Hey, who are you? And next thing you know, they're like our best friends. They drag us to the local racetrack and my son was hooked. <laughs> so we, uh, we found ourselves at the racetrack like every weekend it seemed. And, um, the, I, I remember the first time that I chose to go to a race instead of a model show. And I'm like, yeah, here we go. Yeah. And one thing led to another. And I'm like, if I'm going to these races, which is, this stuff is not cheap, I probably should figure out some way to make money while I'm here. You know, it's just the <laughs> business in me thinking. Sure. And like we had done so many times before up to this point, uh, I said, well, maybe I should look for a business for sale and started looking for motocross businesses and just found a few things. And what I found that ended up sticking was a business that was a, um, a graphics design business. Basically you make stickers and print right. them out and sell them to people. And I'm thinking, wow, this, that's easy. You know, I'm, I know, <laughs> I know how to use Photoshop. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> and so the plan was we're going to buy this and just add it to our, you know, our, our trophy wall, I guess you mm -hmm. could say. And uh, the way it was presented to us is that it was just a, you know, part-time thing, take a few hours a day or whatever. And, okay, cool, we'll do this. Well, we bought it. And the machines come came in. The, the guys we bought it from came and showed us how to use everything. And, and they left. And I'm like, 
what in the world have we done? Because this, it didn't take us long at all to realize this was totally different than our business that we had. You know, up to now, it was buy model kits and sell them, uh, produce model kits and sell them, or whether it's model kits or not, buy products and sell them, produce model kit products and sell them. These are things we know. This was totally different because you're dealing with custom one-off designs. You know, little Johnny's got to have number nine on his bike and he needs this set of sponsors and they need to be in this order and in this color. And it, it was a lot of work. It's like making a mo- producing a model to order from the customer where exactly. he tells you exactly what he wants. It, exactly. It would. It would actually be very, very similar to if every model you bought on Squadron, I was going to build it and paint it for you and send it to you. <laughs> that is that is a very, very good way of describing it. And well, you really don't want to do that. Yeah, you don't well, want to do that. <laughs> well, it was so totally different than anything else I'd ever done. I thought I wanted to do it. It was a lot of fun uh, making my kid's bike look awesome. We'd go to the track and we'd have this big tent set up and, you know, we'd promote our brand and people would come over and we'd sell them graphics and I'd have to go back to the shop money and make them. Well, it was very obvious, very fast that we were not going to be, excuse me, I was not going to be able to do both. Mm -hmm. So as I started spending more time on the graphics, I started spending less time at free time hobbies. And uh, a couple of our employees had to step up and kind of fill in the space that I was leaving void. And that was fine for a while, but it got to the point where I had to decide what I wanted to do because I couldn't do both, even though I was trying. So long story short, we decided to sell free time hobbies. And I remember the IPMS Nationals in Chattanooga. Oh, yes. Yep. What was that, 2019? 2019, I was there. So were you. Yep, I was. And hopefully you didn't know it, but I I had already checked out of the hobby business at that show. As sad as that is for me to say at this point, for the past few months leading up to that show, I had spent... 90% 90% of my time doing the graphics and the rest of my employees were basically running the show at, at free time. And I remember going to that show and I was like, all right, I got to go to the show. Cause I love going to nationals and uh, we're going to do this. So we went in a big way and, and it was, I had a lot of fun, but at that show, I realized that the little bit of time that I had kind of checked out, if you will, I was already out of the knowledge of knowing the new products and all this stuff. And um, it wasn't a couple of months after that, that uh, we had a buyer for free time hobbies uh, and and we sold it. And then at that point I really was gone. And the guy that bought it um, moved it to North Carolina, which was kind of interesting because that's where we bought Trident hobbies from. So it's, it's almost like it was going back home. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The circle of life. Yep. Yep. So you at this point have sold free time and you've got a full-time graphics business. And and that is right. And, and, and I haven't mentioned it 
uh, very much, but keep in mind that, that my dad is still in the business with me at this point. We're still, you know, partners or whatever, right. you know, and when I say I sold it, we sold it, we, right. you know, yeah. And I had the graphics business and dad was back to the point of, um, my mom saying, well, as long as you're home. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he, you know, he said, Hey, can I help you with the graphic stuff? So I'm like, sure. Come on. So he came up to the shop, got him a desk and, and it, but it was funny because I'm over there working on graphics. I'm always hearing him talking to friends in the hobby business and talking about this, talking to the guy that bought free time hobbies, trying to help him. And I'm like, okay, I, I just, I can't get away from the hobby business uh, no matter what I do. You know, I'm trying to make a go at this graphics thing and it was, it was kicking my butt, but I mean, what was I going to do? I was holding the bag. I had to make it work. Right. And, uh, I remember the, the guy that we bought Trident hobbies from Chris Decker, he was the guy who also ran Yankee Model Works, which we ended up buying a few yeah. years later. So he's he's always been a friend, and he's always been there, been around. You know, he's always checking in, saying hey. You know, it's just a just a good buddy that's always checking up on us, saying hey, and all that kind of stuff. So I remember in January of 2021, I remember Dad sitting over at his desk. And I, I forget what he said, but he said something to the effect of, wow. So uh, obviously that got my attention and I walked over and uh, dad put Chris on speakerphone. And Chris was basically telling us that Squadron had filed bankruptcy. Yeah. Or what was left of Squadron. Yes. Well, bankruptcy. and, you know, the interesting thing about it is we were not surprised. And I'm sure a lot of people were oh, surprised. Oh, no. No. Yeah. But. They died once a very the, obvious and slow death. Over yeah, once the years, once yeah. the VC people came in and took over, it was obvious that that's exactly what was going to eventually happen. Well, Dave, you told me a little while ago uh, before this started that you're interested in the business side of things. So this is a little bit of inside information that I would probably never share if I didn't own Squadron and Free Time Hobbies now because um, – uh, Spoiler alert, we bought free time hobbies back. But anyway, before we sold free time hobbies, for several years, we've got a business broker that always helped us with these deals. And he would call, because uh, we asked him to, back in as early as like maybe 2015. I, I don't remember exactly, but several years ago, he would call you know, maybe once a year, maybe once every other year, he would call Squadron, uh, the VC group, and tell them I have a, they never knew it was us, but, mm -hmm. uh, well, <laughs> they weren't supposed to know it was us. And at the time, they probably didn't. They had no clue who Little Free Time Hobbies was. Right. Uh, the VC group didn't anyway. The guys out in Texas might have. But, uh, hey, I got, a, I got a guy that's interested in buying the business. Would you sell it? No. The next time they called, no. Not ready yet. We hadn't turned it around yet. And if you know how VC groups work, they're all about buying it, growing it, flipping it, and turning a profit. They have yep. no interest in all in the business other than if it can make them money. Right. And don't get me wrong. I mean, that's the point of being in business. You want to make money. Right. 
but they could care less if it was a, a restaurant. Right. Widgets or models or, or tires or whatever. Exactly. And this VC group, they had a portfolio of several businesses and uh, Squadron, of course, being one of them. Well, the so this went on for a few years, but it was always a no, we're not quite where we wanted to be yet. Well, here's the interesting thing. In 2000. I guess 19 when we decided to sell the business after after we got an offer or the no after we knew we were about to get an offer our broker gets a call from the VC group and said hey we're ready to talk so he called us and told us this and we're like well, that throws a monkey wrench in our plans <laughs> because we always wanted to buy Squadron. Right. But it just – it wasn't in the cards mostly because they weren't interested. And uh, who knows what it would have cost had they been interested. Right. Well – Yes, you were much better off waiting. Oh, yeah. Well, we know that now. <laughs> so, so we finally got an offer for Free Time Hobbies. The same day – that we got an offer to sell free time hobbies. We got an offer from the VC group to buy squadron literally the same day. <laughs> now was this after the bankruptcy filing? No, this was, this was a year and a half or two years before the bankruptcy. Okay. This was when they were still trying to not let anybody they know. They started yeah. stripping it. Yeah. They were in the tank big time, but they were, okay. they had a facade Right. And nobody knew it at this point. Well, even though we had an offer that we were pretty sure we were going to accept for free time hobbies, as soon and we were we were like supposed to have the meeting to accept this offer like within an hour. And we find out that they want to talk, they want to make us an offer to buy MMD holdings. I think was the name of it at the time. Mm-hmm. So we were like, we gotta we gotta take the call. <laughs> we we gotta know what's up. Sure. So we get on the phone. It was it was me. It was dad. It was the VC group. I don't know if it was just one guy from the VC group. And it was um, Gwen, the president of Squadron that every, everybody knows. So she well. was one of the VC people who was placed in that job, right? She was not with the VC group, but she was hired by the VC group to be to be the president of Squadron. Yes. Gotcha. And so... We got on this meeting, and they told us how much they wanted, and we started asking a few questions. It wasn't like 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, and we're like, I'm sorry, but we're, we're selling free time hobbies, and we're out of the business. <laughs> there, there was um, – I mean, it's, it's public knowledge now how many millions of dollars that yes. they were in debt. Well, that was – that was told to us. And basically I'll just say it this way. What they were asking for us to buy squadron would have paid off of uh, paid off their debts. Yeah. So you can do the math. This was a year and a half, two years prior to the bankruptcy. You can imagine the kind of numbers that they were looking for. And because of us knowing, because they had to tell us all their debts, we're like, are y'all crazy? And we we went and looked. I'm not sure I'd take it if you gave it to me. Right. Well, we started looking at their uh, their portfolio. Well, Squadron was the last business left that they had not sold off. Right. They field stripped that thing. Yes. 
So it was it was a bad situation. I, I feel really bad for a lot of the well, all the guys out in Texas because I was not there. I'm hearing this secondhand, um, but from what I understand, it was almost like and I don't know what day of the week it is. I'm just saying, but it's almost like they went to work Wednesday. And then they came back to work Thursday morning and there was a sign on the door that said, we're done, go home. Yeah. So, and now surely many, if not all of them had an idea of what was going on, but you know, it's like one day you've got a job, the next day you're done. And I knew a lot of those guys out there, guys and gals, uh, at free time hobbies, we were a dealer of MMD. We bought a heck of a lot of stuff from MMD. So when you I, I, could, when you could get it, yes, <laughs> there is that. Uh, that was that was very interesting that Chris had called us and told us that. But the reason he was calling to tell us that was that he told us that he was going to go to the auction and try to buy the company. Well, we basically told him, "Good luck. We're out of the business." And and that was that. I'm sure it was a little bit longer of a conversation, but uh, that was the gist of it. And he did. He went to Texas, went to the auction, uh, did the whole, you know, the whole thing. He had his uh, his number in mind for what he wanted. Now, everybody always asks me, well, did you get this? Did you get that? And at the time, you got to remember, I was doing this graphics thing. Right. And dad was helping me. Uh, we had a, a non-compete clause with the guy that bought free time hobbies. Time, I mean, right. I, I couldn't go back into the hobby business, even if I'd wanted to, at least not for a couple of years. Right. By the way, whoever, whoever bought free time, they were really smart to get a non-compete. Well, then that's what we always did. To be honest with you, um, maybe he had the idea, but whether he did or he didn't, we told him he should, because yes. every business we bought, uh, you know, you do it. and Right. Um, you should. Right, exactly. And Chris goes out to the auction and he he wins. And what he won, they had split it up. Like uh pallet racks went in one auction. Your classic bankruptcy liquidation. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, they got all these pieces. Well, the non-tangible um business assets. The the IP and copyrights and all of that. All that stuff. Things that aren't actual physical items. Yes. The website, the name squadron, the trademark name squadron, and the Eagle logo, all those things, that's what he won in the auction. Now, he got some other things too, some uh probably some computer chairs and who knows? Yeah. I mean, he got yeah. he got some other physical things that he won, but the main thing he was going out there for was that. Now, interestingly enough, what he did not come home with was Squadron Signal Publications. That was split, and from what I understand, the reason that was split off is that there was some party that was interested in that. Yeah, and so it, it got back to the auction house or whatever that there was a publishing company specifically interested in that. So they pulled it out and made it a separate lot. Yeah. Well, that publishing house, whoever it was, ended up not even bidding on it. So uh, Lee Liebold, if you know who that is, is the guy now that owns all of the original uh, Squadron Signal paintings, like all the Don Greer paintings and stuff. He owns all that. Well, that's what he and his business partner went out there with the intention of buying. And they did. 
And he sells them at the Nationals. He does, and he he does. So those are those are very nice. But that's what he went to get. Well, when it was all said and done, they realized that Squadron Signal Publications had been pulled out of the main IP auction, and nobody had bid on it. So they won all the paintings, and they thought, well, as long as we're here and as long as it's available, we might as well buy Squadron Signal Publications because we might need that when we get to selling all this stuff. Right. So he bought all that. Well, we'll stick that on the shelf for a minute and come back to it. But Chris buys everything that he bought, comes back to Georgia, and gets going. Now, Chris uh, at the time was had a an Amazon business. He, you know, who you can't call him, none of that. He just sells through Amazon, uh, maybe eBay. And that was his intention to use squadron to kind of go that way. And, um, as a modeler who loves squadron, even before I owned it, wish the best for Chris, but I'm glad that didn't happen because it would have not been the same that squadron, you know, has the potential of being, or at right. least that was my opinion. So he starts down this path. Well, then he decides, okay, well, maybe I do need to do more than Amazon and eBay. Maybe I need to have a squadron website. Maybe I need to do the whole thing. And he's just trying to figure out what he's doing. Well, he calls me. And again, I'm like, hey, I'm in the graphics. Can't help you. Bye. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm like trying to honor my non-compete thing, right? Right. Well, he calls dad and says, look, I really need some help. Uh, on the wholesale side, the MMD side, the importing, the distrib- uh, distribution, all that. Right. And dad kind of told him the same thing. He's like, look, love to help you, but I, I kind of can't. And Chris basically said, well, look, money talks. And he was looking through the records, and Free Time Hobbies was actually a bigger customer of MMD than we thought we ever were. Chris said, look, here's the top 10 customers from MMD, and hey, you guys are on this list. They're like, oh. Well, that's kind of cool. That's a, like a little proud moment, you know. And so he's, uh, Chris kind of talks with dad, and they come up with this idea that the new owner of Free Time Hobbies might benefit from MMD being back and being able to be a supplier for them again. Sure. And and that that is true. So, and, and Chris, his argument was basically, it ain't going to happen if I don't have any help. And he says, I know that, uh, that you know people, he says, uh, tell me somebody. He's like, you don't need anybody else. You need me. We got to figure this out. So they start talking to the free time guy, and um, the three of them, they really start working together. And before long, the non-compete is completely done away with legally. Right. Now dad can really focus on importing, distributing, Free Time Hobbies is a customer yet again. Uh, some of those supply, oh, not some, all of those supply chains were just blown to smithereens uh, oh, yeah. from the Wait. Texas guys. But he's, yeah, they were gone. Yeah, you got to put it all back together from scratch. And Squadron bur- or MMD burned a lot of bridges. Burned a lot of bridges, but Dad got really good at rebuilding bridges. Well, Dad ended up telling Chris, look, I don't want to work for you you probably don't really want me to work for you. Why don't you just sell me the MMD? And Chris thought about it for a little while, but you know, the end result was they made an agreement, made a deal and dad bought 
MMD uh, from military model distributors right. from Chris. And for the first time ever, MMD and Squadron were no longer the same company. Right. So the idea was dad was going to rebuild the MMD name, rebuild the bridges with the suppliers. And the one, a lot of times people ask, well, did he have a hard time with that? Well, it wasn't easy. Oh, yeah. But if you look at the auction list and when you see that they owed Vallejo like $800,000. Yep. When Vallejo all of a sudden became available at MMD again, dad knew that he didn't have any problems ahead of him. It was just a matter of being a good guy, doing what you say, being honest, and mostly paying your bills. Yep. And um, today, every single one of those bridges is rebuilt. Um, so th- that's a good thing. But That is so he- a huge accomplishment because I'm an attorney. I do a fair amount of bankruptcy work. And there are a lot of creditors who hold grudges. Yep. And hold grudges against the new people who come in, who came in and bought the assets, who really didn't have anything to do with them getting burned. Right. Your father is clearly a really, really good businessman and salesman to rebuild those bridges because that ain't easy. Yep. And and he is. And... And I'll be honest with you, the fact that we already had a pretty decent name in the industry through the free time hobbies years, that did not hurt us. Sure. Um, You know, any of these suppliers over there, all they had to do was make a couple of phone calls and some one of their manufacturing friends knew who Russ Lowe was. Because back with free time hobbies, we were not able to buy directly from most menu or from all manufacturers, but we were able to buy direct from some. So a lot of people knew who we were. So this rebuilding the bridges, so to speak, it took when he bought MMD from Chris, that was spring or early summer of 2021, just a few months after the bankruptcy. And it was not until January of 2022 when he like officially came out and said, Hey, I'm back. So he spent the better part of that year, just rebuilding the bridges in the background. Sure. So at that point, at that point, you've got MMD owned by your dad. You've yes. got free time owned by, by Thompson Clark up in, yep. To, his name was Thompson. Yeah. He was up in North Carolina. And, and then, then you've got squadron owned by Chris, the squadron name owned yep. by Chris. That is correct. And I'm still over here in graphic land. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing about it is graphic land happened to be the shop where dad's MMD desk was. He's like, Hey, I don't have a shop anymore. Can I keep my desk in here? I'm like, sure. Well, we have like, was it 1,800 square feet is all we had in that little building? That's all I needed for my graphic shop. Sure. I had room for my printers, and I had a roll-up door to bring um, dirt bikes and ATVs in to put stickers on. Gotcha. So that little let-me-have-my-desk-in-here over the course of the next couple of months turned into all of a sudden there's pallets of model kits coming in. <laughs> and I'm like, golly. <laughs> and it got so bad, I use bad in a jokingly a joking sense, but got so bad that I was literally having to climb over pallets of models to do my graphic production. And it wasn't that I, 
I, I did not dislike the hobby. I mean, I loved it. I still had my stash. I'd sold off sure. some of it to make room for my, uh, my dirt bike shop. But I was, I was really trying to make it go at this graphics thing. Well, dad wasn't making it easy for me. I'm looking at all these new models that are coming out. I'm like, dang. Well, so Chris had actually um, called me to say, look, I really, your dad's doing good with the MMD. He's getting me some stuff to sell. And I'm selling some of it on, on Amazon and all this. But, you know, the the diehard squadron customer doesn't necessarily shop on Amazon. And what right. sells on squadron doesn't sell on Amazon. You know, Amazon, you can sell little car models and Titanics and uh, things like that all day long. But squadron customers, if you're a ship guy, you've probably got like 10 Titanics in your stash already. Right. So he said, look, you can build a website like better than anybody I know. Will you please build me a squadron website? And I'm like, okay, fine. (laughs) So I agreed. I said, look, if you'll pay me X, I'll, I'll bid you website. And he's like, fine, whatever, name your price, just build the site. And the only reason I took this job is because they had done away with the non-compete. And by extension, I was freed up. And I'm like, okay, whatever, here we go. So I start building this squadron site. And I'm like, okay, this is like everything I ever wanted back before we sold free time. I wanted to own squadron. I thought that would be cool. And I'm sitting here literally building a new www.squadron.com. For somebody else. For somebody else. <laughs> yep. And and it occurred to me that this somebody else had sold a portion of what used to be MMD Squadron to my dad, who I used to be in the hobby business full time with. So I came into work one morning and I told dad, I said, I'm about to go outside and I'm going to call Chris Decker and I'm going to offer to buy everything that he did not sell you related to squadron. Basically the retail side. Yeah. Yeah. Everything that didn't have to do with MMD, the right. retail side, the just whatever he still, whatever Chris owned that he didn't sell to dad, I wanted it. And dad's like, all righty then, <laughs> you know, like it's like yesterday you were in graphics land and today you want to buy squadron. I'm surprised. And, I'm surprised he didn't say what took you so long. Well, he probably said something to that effect. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he, as, as MMD, I mean, it doesn't take much to realize that squadrons probably always MMD's biggest customer. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, that would be great because I would love to have squadron back full time as a, you know, as one of the dealers. I'm like, okay. So called Chris, talked to him, and I don't know how long it took, but we came up with something uh, that would work for him and that I could afford. And uh, that was that. I bought everything uh, retail squadron, and that included all the trademarks, um, everything. The only thing that it did not include was squadron signal publications, and that's because Chris did not own that. Right. Now, this was fall of 2021. I didn't tell anybody because I was in this very weird position that even though I had been let out of the non-compete with free time hobbies from a legal standpoint, from a moral standpoint, I was struggling with competing against my old company that I had sold to a guy who I knew and considered a friend. Right. 
And I mean, I was going to do what I had to do, but I was like, I was really being quiet to start with. Yeah. And I remember January, the first week of January is always the Chattanooga IPMS show. Yeah. One of the first in the, in the year, yep. calendar year. Exactly. So at this point, the last model show that I had been to was the Chattanooga, uh, Chattanooga Nationals. Because in 20, of course, the Nationals got canceled. And then the regional show in Chattanooga, which I always go to, that was the show that we went to a race instead of the model show. Because my son's championship race weekend, which he ended up winning the championship, uh, was that weekend. So I had not been to this show since the Nationals. Dad goes wearing an MMD shirt, and I went wearing a squadron shirt, and I put my jacket on over my squadron shirt. And I'm walking around, recognizing a lot of old friends, but not like really being a fish out of water. I'm like, how am I going to be, you know, accepted here? (laughs) The last time these guys knew, I sold everything and I got out, and, you know, I can't sell them kits anymore. And we come across a, uh, Good old familiar face and a real good buddy of mine. He was there selling books named David Doyle. Yeah. And I was like, hey, David. He's like, wow, hadn't seen you in a while. And I said, well, let me tell you what's going on. He says, oh, I already know what's going on. (laughs) There there are no secrets in the hobby industry. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And, And he says, before you say anything else, he says, when you gonna write? You, when you gonna have me write your first book? And I said, "Well, David, I don't own Squadron Signal Publications." And he says, "We can fix that." And <laughs> <laughs> so he said, "Look," and he told me about Lee Lee Bold. And he said, "The only reason Lee bought it is because it was there and it was available. That's not what he went out there to get." I said, "Okay." And he said, "Look, call Lee. Here's his number." Tell him you want to buy Squadron Signal Publications. He can keep the paintings and all that. And tell him you want to buy it. As soon as you buy it, call me back. I've got your first book ready to go. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I wrote an FA-18 Hornet book for Gwen. As soon as I got it done, she pulled the plug on Squadron Books and said, no more books. He said, so it's literally done. All you got to do is click print. I heard that story. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> so that was extreme. I mean, that was worth the the trip to the show right there. Sure. So as you can probably imagine, we go back. I called Lee Leibold and we ended up buying that, or I did, um, and got all that stuff, got, got up with David. We did, in fact, release that Hornet book. Uh, the only thing that we changed was I didn't use the cover that he had. Uh, I got my new 3D artist, Peter, to do a... Uh, cover for it which i kind of like and peter's (laughs) done the rest of the aircraft book covers for us since then so that was that at that point we had we started referring to it as putting humpty dumpty back together again yeah that's a good analogy (laughs) it it is and and because even though technically we're two different companies you know dad's got his own llc uh or his is incorporated i think right and i've got mine as squadron llc um i mean we share a warehouse Right. Um, so we're, we're two companies, but we still work close together. So we got all that. I got the squadron signal stuff. I started putting books out a few months later. I found out who ended up buying. I owned the trademark to true details. Right. Or I still own it. 
Well, I get a call one day from a guy, and, and this is kind of like a, it's like a shotgun effect. The auction house had no clue what they had, so they split everything up to the way that made sense to them. Right. And it just got scattered everywhere. Yep. Some of the stuff, I mean, pallet racks, I'm not going to buy pallet racks from Texas. I'll buy them here in Georgia. You know, some stuff doesn't matter. But one day I get a call from this guy, and he says, hey, I'd like to buy the trademark for from you for true details. And I'm like, well, it's not for sale, but uh, why are you interested in it? And he says, oh, well, that's too bad. He says, I, I'm about to buy all of the resin masters and molds from the guy who bought them from auction. Yeah. Well, that guy realized that he doesn't own the trademark because he didn't know he needed to ask. And the auctioneer definitely didn't take the time to figure it out. Oh, yeah. So I, I felt bad for him. So he was either going to have to try to buy the trademark from me. Or he was going to have to rebrand all that stuff, which is a marketing nightmare. Yeah. And then, if I remember correctly, he was in the middle of moving, and he was like, you know what? I'm done with it. I'm just going to sell this stuff off. So this other guy calls me. He's like, hey, I'm going to buy it. I need to buy the trademark. I'm like, no, it's not for sale. Who are you buying it from? And he told me, and I said, well, look, as soon as I hang up, I'm going to call that guy. I'm just being honest with you, telling you what I'm going to do, and I'm going to buy all that stuff. And he goes, all right. That's fine, because if you're not going to send me the trademark, I'm about to call him and tell him the deal's off anyway. <laughs> so I, I kind of felt bad. I'm like, well, crap. But I said, eh. well, that's business. So I, that's business. Well, I, I told the guy, I said, well, I'll be fair to him. Whatever he was going to sell it to you for, I'll buy it from him for the same price. So it worked out. The guy ended up selling and getting the money he wanted anyway. But that was yet another piece to Humpty Dumpty. Yep. And we, we kept putting all these pieces back together. And um, today we're kind of, I, I think we got pretty much everything. I mean, I, I won't be surprised at the next phone call that something else comes up that, oh yeah, that was a part of squadron, but that was, you know, kind of how all that panned out. And then the entire year of 21 was just really built uh, around the idea of rebuilding bridges uh, for me on the retail side. Sure. The, the biggest question that I kept getting was, do you have a catalog? Yeah. You know, are you going to do the flyers? And um, I was, I'm glad you're going into this because yeah. this was the question I was going to ask. Oh, yeah. Well, so their mailing list, oh, man, they were spending so much money each month sending those flyers out. And they're yeah. really cool. I've yeah. got a – I had a bunch – now I have almost all of them. I've been trying to collect one of every single flyer catalog and squadron signal book that they ever printed uh, oh for my. our what we're calling our squadron uh, museum. But they're really cool. I loved them. Um, heck, when we were free time hobbies, we bought the catalogs and we sold them to our customers. Sure. I mean, I don't know why, <laughs> but we did. And we, we all liked them. It's the Sears wish book. Yep, it is it the is. thing that a modeler, and and forgive me for this, it's on the back of the toilet. Yeah. And when he oh, goes into yeah. the bathroom, he's paging through that thing like it's a Sears catalog. Absolutely. And, and that's, we knew that. I knew that. But it was just a matter of, you know, I, I used the term a lot 
I don't want Squadron to file bankruptcy again. Yes. And and most people know what I mean by that. You know, it's like, yes, I wish we had, you know, a thousand copies of every single model kit and photo etch set that exist in the warehouse right now so we never run out. But that's just not in the cards. Right. And you you, you have to run a business. Exactly. So we looked at this mailing list and oh my gosh, the the mailing list of the addresses that they were sending out to were in the hundreds of thousands of addresses. Now, they didn't send that many each month. Unfortunately, when I got everything, it was really not organized well. But trying to piece things together, and if anybody that used to work out there ever hears this, they're probably laughing at me saying, that's not how we did it at all. But best I can tell, they had this massive list, but they kind of did a cycle sort of thing. They sent to... X amount of customers this month, then they sent to X amount of a, of different customers the next month. So they didn't have to send to every single customer every single month. Right. Um, at, at least that's what it looks like from the records that I can see. But even at that, back when we're starting, I mean, when we moved everything in from Texas, we had zero inventory. Dad, when he bought MMD, the only inventory he got was some of the squadron tools. But there was no inventory. All that was liquidated at auction. It's IP is all you exactly, got. Exactly. So we were literally building an inventory from zero. And um, if, you, if you get the opportunity to come check out our warehouse uh, sometime, you'll see that we are far from zero uh, <laughs> as far as inventory is concerned now. But that, that takes a while to get there, and we're still adding new manufacturers each month we've been doing that for almost three years straight now every month adding at least one if not more manufacturers and eventually we'll we'll be where we want to be sure but looking at this flyer and catalog thing we're like we can't do that but i really wanted to do something so in the fall of 21 i decided to do what i referred to as our fall flyer mm-hmm. now Unfortunately, it's still the only one I've done, but we sent this fall flyer. I forget how many thousands of people we sent it to, but we we took that whole list, and I forget what criteria we used, but we went through and somehow narrowed it down to whatever it was that we wanted to spend at the time, and, and we just, poof, sent it out. Had no clue what was going to happen because Squadron.com, of course— has a lot of customers there. Right. But it's an amazing amount of customers. Or Squadron had an amazing amount of customers that are not on the internet. They don't have computers. Fully 10%, I am convinced, of modelers are in little or no way connected to the internet. Yes, definitely, if not more than 10%, at least the Squadron customer base. Right. But we had an amazing um, amount of response from that. Customers calling in, oh, wow, I didn't know you were back. Uh, Oh, I was wondering what happened to Squadron. I mean, I told the story so many times um, of a very, very, very condensed story of what I'm telling you now. But that really, really worked, I guess we'll say. And it got a lot of the customers that had no clue. Because when we bought it, we obviously got an email list too. 
yes, we sent an email out. Obviously, we do every week. But a lot of those these customers, they don't have an email or they weren't on the email list or, or whatever. So the, the printed flyer went out. It was very cool. I really enjoyed doing that. And it convinced me that I wanted to do a full length catalog. Well, because of my, this, this is the, uh, the part where this is the only good thing that came out of the graphics business for me. You know, I said, oh, I know how to use Photoshop. You don't use Photoshop when you're printing graphics. It's all vector-based stuff. Right. So I learned Illustrator. I learned all that stuff. And as soon as I, we bought Squadron Signal and I started having to lay out books, and then I started on this catalog project, I realized, oh, wow, all that stuff I learned in the graphics business applies to this. I knew how to lay a catalog out. So I started laying. I don't know if you've got a copy. Picked up one at uh, San Marcos Nationals. Okay, good. Well, then you know the amount of work that I put into that. I really wanted to make it something. And took me a lot longer than I expected it to, but we were able to get that uh, done printed and on our table in uh in san marcos that's when we released it and i'll bet you sold the heck out of that people i know that there are plenty of people who said why would i buy a catalog of but the nostalgia play on that item had to be huge and that is true nobody was nasty about it but I had a lot of customers saying that exact thing. I'm not paying for a catalog. And I understand that for my own personal. I'm like, I, I get it. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't I either, gonna... right. Yeah. But the amount of money that it costs to print something like that nowadays, I'm like, I'm not just going to give it away. Right. You know, I'd, I'd rather yeah. sell 10 of them than give away thousands of them. I, you know, yeah. so I'm going through all these, these mental things. I'm like, I don't want to sell it. But I also don't want to lose money, and I know it's a marketing thing. you got to spend money on marketing. Well, we decided to sell it, and we sold the heck out of them. I was at San Marcos. I was in the squadron room. By the way, brilliant move to have the (laughs) squadron room. I was in there. On numerous occasions, I made purchases at least three or four times, and I watched those darn... Again, I got a catalog, but I watched those darn things fly off, which, again, in the age of the internet, where everything's available on the internet, and, you know, nobody wants paper anything, the nostalgia play from that, you could just tell... There are all of these modelers who had squadron deep yep. in their blood from when they first got into modeling in the 80s and the 90s, whenever it was. And that thing was almost a call home to them. Yep. Well, and there's an existence theorem out there in, in model railroading. William K. Walthers has sold their big catalog oh, yeah. since the 50s, I guess, probably. You know, right. and that's that's one of the things that we consider. We're like, well, Walthers sells theirs. Yeah. And everybody buys it. Yeah, it's like a so, must buy every year. Yeah, and yeah. but if you notice, Dave, in yours, there are no prices. Yes, I did. I did notice that. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. 
first of all, prices change all the time uh, these days. Especially right at that time, because oh, yeah. it was the beginning of an inflationary spiral. It, yes. I mean, stuff was changing all the time, but I realized that, okay, if we're going to sell this this book, it needs to be a book. It doesn't need – I mean, yes, it's the Squadron catalog, and if you notice right. the front cover, I called it The Squadron, which is what the original flyers were called. Yes. And the original flyers, if you happen to have any of those, they were more than just a catalog. They had write-ups in them. It was almost like a, like a modeling magazine. Yeah. And I wanted it to be something like that because I said, if we're going to sell it, it needs to be a book. Yeah. So I put the write-up of my story in the front of it. I had a little write-up from David Doyle. I had a write-up from uh, Peter at Atlantis Models in there. Um, a couple of other just interesting things that's not just models for sale. And then you just flooded with pages and pages and pages of, of model kits. That's what in the old days, again, before the internet, modelers used the Squadron catalog for was, does somebody make a kit of this? Yep, exactly. And so they'd look through it. And now again... The internet's out there. We can do the Google search and all. But again, there is that nostalgia play yep. of having the tactile item in front of you. I thought it was brilliant. Well, that is what it is because we've sold the heck out of them. Oh, I had no doubt of that. Yep. And now, granted, a lot of customers that don't use the internet or a computer or whatever, they really do use it as a catalog. They mm -hmm. call me and they place orders. But the law, I, I, I don't know, percentages, but a very large percentage of customers that bought it, they're regulars on my website that have never called me other than to say, this catalog is great. I'm glad you did it. And <laughs> it, it occurred to me that they didn't buy it to go shopping. They oh, bought yeah. it to put it on their bookshelf or, like you said, stick it on the back of their toilet and just have something to physically hold and flip through. And then when they get ready to order, they go to my website. One of the biggest questions I'm getting asked now, because on that catalog, it says 2023. Right. And they're like, all right, well, is there going to be another one? Well, the answer is yes. I don't know what the next one's going to look like yet, because I have learned what this is being received as. And it's right. being received as a nostalgia play. It's a, it's a book. It's not necessarily... It can be used as a tool to go shopping, but that's not what we have found out that its main reason yes, the desire to have one is not necessarily just to have a book to go shopping. Exactly. Um, so the next issue, and we released, even though it says 2023, we released it at nationals. Yep. So my, my hopeful goal is if we can do one each year, that we release it around the time of nationals. Um, so we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> – uh, fingers crossed we'll have one at Madison this year uh, if things go according to plan. Well, to put a little bow on things, how did you end up with free time hobbies, Pat? Um, so the guy that bought it, he he kind of bought it just he he wasn't a hobby guy, wasn't a model builder. He just he wanted to own his own business and this one was available. He was he had us uh, he had us picked. I think he had a, a garbage service that he was looking at. <laughs> uh, just so my, and you know, whatever. But right. point business is, he, is business. Exactly. He wasn't looking for a hobby business. He was looking for a business and free time was doing pretty good. And 
that just kind of worked for him. But I, I guess kind of like me when I bought the graphics business, I thought it was going to be one thing and it wasn't. Uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's kind of what I feel happened to him. He sure. thought it was going to be one thing and then it wasn't. And we ended up just and, – and after we bought uh, – after dad was in the MMD, after I was doing Squadron, I'm like, we got to buy Free Time Hobbies back. Because at the time, I was beating around the bush telling the story of how I got into the business. I didn't want to advertise for Free Time, but that was kind of part of my life for 10-plus years. Sure. So um, it just made sense. Uh, we bought it, and you know that was that. And and it worked out for him because after we bought it, we found out that he had already bought his next business that he was into like a few months prior to us buying free time. So he he had already checked out anyway. So he was <laughs> he was on to new things. Okay, well, I have so. to a- I have to ask, what did he buy? Uh, I don't know the name of it, but it this one's crazy sounding to me. It's very cool. But he bought a um, a business that repairs locomotives. You mean actual locomotives? Actual trains, yes. They, I, I forget where he is. And Thompson, if you ever hear this, I, I apologize that I don't remember. But yes, he his business, they actually repair real train locomotives. Wow. So, <laughs> uh, you know, but last time I talked to him, it was doing good. So hopefully it still is. So, yeah, uh, yeah interesting. Well, Brandon, that's an amazing story, and you really gave us to the nth detail, and we really appreciate that, and our listeners will too, because the demographic is a lot of people who who grew up with Squadron, and it's it's great to see the brand back, and it's just been a great fun talking to you. We could go on for another hour, but uh, uh, we'll have to have you back at some point. Yeah, please do. That'd be great. It, again, thank you for coming on and telling the story, because everybody knows Squadron's back. You all did a great job of making a splash at San Marcos. And people are happy about that. Again, there are a lot of people who grew up with Squadron and are so happy to see it return and return forcefully. It's just great to see. I I could not be happier. Well, I really appreciate that, guys. Thank you. Dave, it's good to see Squadron back on the hobby landscape. Yes, absolutely. It is a classic brand. I know folks our age certainly grew up getting those three-color multi-page flyers in the mail every month. I cannot tell you how much as, as a younger modeler I anticipated that flyer coming in the mail on the first few days of each month. And then when you got it, you went through it page by page, item by item. The equivalent of the Sears catalog back in the 1890s. It was so intimately entwined with the hobby. Well, best of luck to those guys. Yes, absolutely. Dave, it's the Benchtop Halftime Report which just happens to be brought to us by Squadron Hobbies, who've been adding to our stash since 1968. What is on your bench, my friend? Everything's on my bench, but my last two weeks of modeling have been sad, sad, sad. I talked in the model sphere about the blow-up and the reorganization. You and I may have to go back to an account, a weekly accountability commitment 
because in the last seven days, I have gotten less than an hour of actual modeling time at the bench. It's sad. I've made very little progress on any of my projects. It's just embarrassing. It's awful. And the only thing, again, you and I started this podcast to try and help make ourselves accountable, not not only to each other, but to the listeners for getting stuff done. I am embarrassed by the last week and a half. My only commitment is I promise I'm going to do better. Honestly, the next two weeks are going to be much more progress than the near nothing that occurred for the last two weeks in my my model bench. Oh, but you've identified an impediment. Yes, I did. I've I've done I've done a lot. Well, of- you've. You've identified it a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, true. I've started to do something about it. You've taken action at this point. so I'm starting to take action. You know, I've thought a lot about this. If my analysis is correct, the pain that I'm going through right now will ultimately result in me being a much more efficient modeler. And if that turns out to, to be true, then it will all have been worth it. But Again, I'm committing to you, Mike, and to you, the listeners, the next two weeks, I am going to make significant progress. So what's your benchtop look like? Uh, It's been busy, a lot busier than the last couple of weeks. Uh, Working on the E16, the canopy's on. That was fun. Folks may know a few episodes back, Steve Hustad recommended a clear Gorilla Glue for that. Mm Mm-hmm. So naturally, that, that's what I went with. Cause sure. He was right. I, he, he gave a caveat about how that part in the model, there's going to be a little play and it's going to float around a little bit. And you, need to, you need to be mindful and keep an eye on it. Certainly, that's true. That, that cement, when you first put it on, does not have a lot of tack and cling. It's almost like floating on surface tension. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So. You you got to put that stuff on and get your canopy in place and, and get it where you want it. Possibly you maybe could tape it down at that point, but I would be really, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. Yeah, I, I would hesitate to do that. I think I'd just watch over it like a mother hen watching over an egg that's about to hatch. Well, so what I did was essentially that, you know, this is where those assembly and, and holding jigs come into play. Mm-hmm. So I bought one of those at one of the last nationals. I can't remember which one. I think it was Omaha. I think it was Omaha. And it was. I, I've been using it to hold the the E16 when I'm not working on it. And I've got it all pretty flat and level on that fixture. And basically what I did was I put the canopy on and I used a, a fine paintbrush to, to put that cement on the bottom edge of the canopy and then s- s- put that on there and tried to minimize the excess so there wasn't any squeeze out or any of that. And and once I got it where I wanted it, well, it was on the fixture while I was doing it. I moved that off my workbench to someplace that was not going to be impacted by me moving around and doing stuff. And it set up and it's, it's pretty good bond. I'm, I'm pretty impressed. So I think, yeah, that's a, that's a good product to use for gluing canopies. Well, Steve's not going to steer you wrong. I'm trying to figure out what's next. 
it's about time with the, with the canopy on. I've, I've got a maybe a little filling to do along the front windscreen, right where it meets the fuselage. I've picked up some Vallejo plastic putty to hopefully do that because I, I don't want something solvent based, or or we have to use a solvent on a Q-tip to to wipe that down to to level. So I'm thinking that's going to be the choice there. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but and then decals, these Fujimi decals. I, I don't know, man. They look a little thick. Now, some of them I'm not going to use. There's some folks familiar with Japanese float planes know about the the, the white bordered red stripes on the pontoons. Right. I'm cutting those out of micro scale clear film. Oh yeah. I'm not using the kit decals. Yeah. I'm not using decals for the uh, the yellow on the forward edge of the wings. Right. Yeah, I I'm, I never do that. I'm probably going to paint and mask mask and paint that. The Hinamaru and and the tail numbers. Now, I could mask the the national markings but not not on this build. I'm probably going to go source some other decals for those. There are a lot of aftermarket Hinamaru decals. Just to be safe. If you show up at my house, I will cut you out a bunch of Hinamarus of the appropriate size and color. And then there's a few I, I can't do much with. Uh, there's some uh, dive angle inclinations that go on the fuselage sides just forward to the cockpit. Now, I could cut those out of trim film, I guess, as well. But yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then I guess on the the horizontal rear stabilizer, I, I, there's markings back there too. And I assume they're for the rear gunner. Yes, they are. That is exactly what they are. They're deflection uh, markings. I think, I don't know. I'm tempted to replace those with trim film cut stripes because they're, they're, Wide enough apart, I think I could probably pull pull that off, like using a compass or a divider to get the spacing yep. right. Maybe I don't know. That's that's what I would be inclined to do, but it's up to you. But the, the tail codes, I'm I'm kind of stuck. I think I'm going to use the kit decals for those. I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. They, I think they're thick, but maybe once it's all said and done, they'll be fine. I don't I don't know. Well, I've used Fujimi, 90s Fujimi decals, and while they are slightly on the thick side, they settled down beautifully. Here's the thing I would recommend. You've got some decals that you're not going to use. I would simply paint up a paint mule, you know, particularly like an aircraft wing or whatever with engraving on it so that you can see how they suck down into the detail. Put three or four of the decals and try Microsol and Microset on one, try that AK Dragon Blood on one, try Solvaset, and just see what gets you the best result, because you've got plenty of spare decals to play with. Well, that's the float plane. That's my biggest challenge there, I think, at this point, is to not rush it. Yeah. It's looking good. I got to finish it. So So far, I'd say you're not rushing it. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, okay. The other thing I'm working on is the Musaru Cup build, the Euro, what is it, 4320? Yeah. Euro 4320 truck. I'm starting to bring all the elements together. I had a little negative modeling the other night, working on the wheels. Not going to say too much there. I'm still playing this one kind of close to the vest. I'm over that. Well, I am, but I'm not. So the thing's got six six wheels and a spare. I got them painted. I was doing what I'm doing to them. 
and I had about 50% plus the spare success rate. So three of the wheels have been stripped and are back to the paint booth. And they're hopefully going to be finished up over the course of this week. And given the things that caused my negative modeling, it's pretty good odds that half of half a quarter are going to gonna have to go through this process one more time. So I think it's going to probably going to take me till the end of the week to get the six wheels for the truck done. But I'm going to meet the deadline. I don't think that's in jeopardy. I was just hoping to get a little further than I did this weekend. But luckily, I'm using Tamiya paint and I've got some 99.9% IPA. So stripping those things, is that's no big deal at all. And finally, the KV85. I've put the base coat on the railroad tracks and ties. Going to start going through my process that I showed on the dojo to get those finished out. And not much work there. I'm probably not going to do much there until I get, get this Moose Roo Cup thing done and dusted. Yeah, it's the one with the deadline. We've reached uh, almost the end of the episode. I'm assuming you are well into your modeling fluid, if not through it. I am. I don't want to be too far through it to pour more and more because this was not, for me, it's not a cheap pour. Now, you can spend a lot more money than I did. Remind us, what is the name of the product? Pursuit United from Pursuit Spirits. This is about a $60 buy. Okay. So next shelf up. Next shelf up. Don't want to burn through this through the weekend because that's a bad habit financially and for other reasons. I was going to say. Yeah. Little backstory. Well, let me tell you what this is. Pursuit United is bottled. It's a blend. It's a blend of bourbons. Now, I put a photograph of this on the dojo and folks uh, honed it on the, uh, the, the, the bottom byline on the label is an adventure in bold flavors. Make no mistake, this is not a flavored whiskey. This is not screwball peanut butter whiskey <laughs> or fireball cinnamon whiskey or whatever crap out there they're trying right. to push push out there for, for $18 a bottle. This is blended straight bourbon whiskey. Some of what they put in this is from Kentucky. Some of it is from Tennessee. And on this particular batch, one of the barrels is from New York, which is interesting. Now, Pursuit Spirits is a bottling brand that is attached to the or the Bourbon Pursuit podcast, which is the top-rated bourbon-themed podcasts in the world. They're they're bottling these blends, so they kind of know what they're doing. And hopefully we're going to see some distilling from them in the near future. I tell you, Dave, this stuff is really good. Now, I'm a novice. Despite all our samplings on this show and all my comments about the notes and what I smell and taste, when the rubber hits the road, I'm no expert. Maybe at times I maybe thought I was trying to get there, but these guys know what they're doing. This stuff is really, really good. It's sweet on the front end for my palate. To the nose, it's got a really, it's got a really heavy vanilla note to it, mm-hmm. which is also something I enjoy. Uh, it's 108 proof. You would think it'd be pretty hot, but the finish is not bad. It's it's pretty smooth. It's I gotta say, this is really enjoyable. Good stuff. You know, our bourbon pursuit. Pursuit United, highly recommended. I I really like this. This is a good one. Well, good. Well, I have gotten almost to the end to the Reds Hard Apple. Again, it's classic hard cider. It's light, 5% alcohol by volume, and, you know, have no fear of it having a deleterious effect on you. 
I enjoyed it. I've drunk a lot of hard cider in my life, and and this is, while not necessarily my favorite, it's not something that I would turn down if it was offered to me. Deleterious? Deleterious. Did you learn that in law school? Yes, that's a that's a five dollar word. Okay, now we've reached the actual end of the episode. Before we close, do you have any shout outs, Mike? I do, Dave. I got some shout outs. I want to shout out Ed Barreth and Paul Budzik one more time. We vowed in private that we were going to make 2024. Well, we were going to move the needle. For yeah. the podcast in 2024. Yep. And these guys have, have certainly helped us do that. We, I think we had two solid episodes in, in January, and I hope we can k- keep this going. I don't know, man. That's a high bar we set for ourselves yes. at yes. the front end of the year. So we had a lot of fun with both of those guys. I know we're going to see Ed at the national convention if all his plans work out. So we're going to definitely get something from him, provided that he's actually in Madison. Paul, we're going to be knocking at your door again. Uh, There's plenty to talk about, and that just worked out so well for us and for for our listeners that we're going to want to talk to you again. So thank you so much. I'm going to shout out both those guys for uh, for being patriarchs in the hobby. They've been at it a long time, and we appreciate what they've got to tell us. Yes. I had them on my list of shout outs as well. Both were great interviews. And the mark of a great interview for me is when you find yourself thinking later about some part of the conversation, something that was said, and I did that with both of them, and it was fantastic. So thank, I'll, I'll join you in that shout-out. My next shout-out is to the family of James Corley. James was a longtime IPMS member. I I knew him first when he owned AAA Hobbies in Northern Atlanta, and I interacted with him a lot. He was very active in IPMS. He moved down to Pensacola. He became a docent at the Naval Aviation Museum down in Pensacola. He and I would interact from time to time. He was very involved not only in modeling, not only in the museum, but in wanting IPMS to be a better organization. And he died suddenly, recently, and it was a shock to hear it because he was a relatively young man. And my heart goes out to his family because I I know they were not expecting that. So, uh, James, you'll be missed. Well, I'll second all that because not often, but when I was head judge at our show, I know he was at our show. Yes. Yep. Several times. That's a pretty good haul from Atlanta. Yes. And he was judging in our shows. And, and some of these folks, you, you don't connect the name and the face, but as soon as that stuff hit hit the internet and I saw the face and the name, I was like, yeah, I know him. He he was a judge at our show, and and we we feel for for his family because a sudden thing, and it's certainly someone who's going to be missed in the hobby. Absolutely. So, do you have any more shout outs other than saying, folks, we appreciate your financial support for Plastic Model Mojo. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can do that through several means. We got Patreon, PayPal, Buy Me a Coffee, and we even got the uh, merchandise store if you want to do it that way. 
Links to all those things can be found in the show notes at www.plasticmodelmojo.com. You just grab the the latest episode and in the show notes, uh, you'll find links to all those ways to contribute to the show. And we got big plans in 2024, Dave, and we thank everyone who's contributing and who's who's making contributions to the show. Very appreciated. Very humbling that you folks think enough of what we're doing to, to do that. So hopefully we're going to bring you more and more in the coming year. Yep. Uh, my final shout out is to uh, listener Tom Choi, as you know from previous episodes. He was listening to the podcast and <laughs> inflicting it on both his wife and his daughter. His daughter heard us mention her in the last podcast, and apparently that excited her greatly. So this is a shout out to Tom Choi's daughter. Hi, I'm sorry your dad is making you listen. <laughs> well, that's it, Dave. We're at the end of this thing. That's it. As we always say, so many kids, so little time, Dave. Let's get to some shows, man. You got it.